This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 3. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Let us pray and we will get started. Our Sovereign Lord. Uh, it is good to be in your house and to learn and talk about the things of your word and to give you the glory you truly deserve. I pray you will guide our discussion, uh, guide me in understanding the, the questions that are posed and uh, guide us in understanding what's being said so that uh, you may be glorified and we may understand more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Last week, we were ending up a discussion talking about some ways in which someone could actually read Scripture incorrectly, the grid or the lens that they use in order to uh, interpret Scripture. One of the things we ended up talking about is that in what appears to be a lot of cases today in Western evangelicalism, there seems to be this sense of using the Bible as a book of instruction, a book of wisdom, and that in order to fulfill your destiny and purpose, you go to this book, and the sense with that is that, in a sense, Christ points you to this stuff, so that Christ is, in a sense, the, um, the wingman on the story of your purpose-filled, or, uh, yeah, purpose-filled life. Or the direction could go the other way that when you take a look at these words in Scripture, they point to Christ, as opposed to Christ pointing to these words. And I think you can see where that would make a difference in terms of how we understand this. Is Christ giving this to you so you can live your best life now? Or, or is this given to you so you can understand who Christ is and that you're in Him? So the direction of that, it may seem a little subtle, and one of the problems with that being as subtle as it is, is that because we're so close to that kind of environment in, in American evangelical culture, we might not see it for the, I'll, I'll put it plain out, aberration that it is in church history. So hopefully that makes sense. Let's continue on. There are other biblical models of interpretation. They aren't necessarily wrong. I mean, one could easily break down looking at Scripture by Old and New Testament, for example. The Old points to Christ, the New indicates Christ and shows how the Old Testament 
is fulfilled in him. Uh, there are ways of viewing the covenants that God has worked through uh, various covenants over time. A covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with the people of Israel under Moses. I mean, you get all of these ways of understanding scripture that aren't necessarily an incorrect way of doing this. I think the model for interpretation isn't so much how, but who. That it's Jesus Christ who is the model, the, the lens by which we interpret scripture. I think we're on safe ground by looking at Jesus as Jesus himself being the center of scripture. We know that because Jesus himself tells us that. He tells us that the Bible is about him. And if I may quote from a recent book by a man named Tullian Vigian, who is senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church down in Florida, uh, took over from D. James Kennedy. And Tavidian also has the distinct honor, if I can put it that way, of uh, being a, one of the grandsons of Billy Graham. His given name is William Graham Tullian Tavidian. He wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Great book. And one of the points he makes is, when it comes to scripture, you matter. But you're not the point. Jesus is. The text of the New Testament, I think, is extremely clear that the New Testament is about Jesus Christ. All but one of the 27 books of the New Testament list Jesus or Christ explicitly by name in the content of the book. There's only one that doesn't. It's 3 John. Extremely short book. But even then, Jesus is referred to as the name. We do this for the sake of the name. So he's still there. I mean, the New Testament, I don't have to go through lessons to indicate Jesus is present in the New Testament. This, I think, would be, I'll be candid, I think it would be a waste of time. I, I take that as just a statement of fact. Jesus is the center of the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament say about Jesus? Let's consider what the Lord Jesus said himself about what Scripture says about him, the Old Testament Scripture. And I will ask once again, uh, if you have your Bibles, if I could ask for some readers, please. Um, have a passage from Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 27. John yeah, well, they're up here. John 5, 37 through 40, and then 45 through 47. Then the passage from Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Do I have some volunteers? Sue, good. Which one would you like? I'll just do Luke. Okay. Uh, so you do that, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll get somebody else to get up, get up the curve to John and Matthew. So yeah, do, do the reading, please, from Luke. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do not the, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, thank you. Some context here that I'll give you is that here's Jesus on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and one other unnamed disciple. As they're walking along, and these two disciples are very downcast because of what's happened to Jesus. 
This stranger starts walking along with them. They don't recognize him yet as being Jesus. And yet he speaks from, I think the text says, Moses and the prophets. This is a comprehensive way of referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. And it says, he spoke to them about Moses and the prophets, what is said about himself. So here's Christ, who is telling two of his disciples, here's where the Old Testament, here, well, we, we call the Old Testament, they would call the Tanakh, the Torah, Nevi'im, Kethubim. It means literally the beginning of the words for law, prophets, and writings. But what the Old Testament says about himself, it's filled with Christ. Uh, do I have a volunteer for the John passage? Dorothy, John chapter 5, yeah, 37 through 40, then 45 through 47. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you, your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Thank you. A few things to, I actually consider about this. One of them is, Think about how, how audacious a claim Jesus is making here. Here are the writings that, that came down from Moses, which were being faithfully copied by scribes over 14, 15 centuries, perhaps. These were recognized as the words of God. And here's this itinerant preacher from the backwaters of northern Israel, telling the learned people, oh, you know these <clears throat> words that came down from God? They're about me. I think sometimes we're almost too familiar with the readings. I mean, try to read this in a sense with the eyes and ears of somebody who's hearing this for the first time. Pretty audacious claim. But also consider that Jesus is saying that these very scriptures that they had been reading and knew of, spoke of him. And again, there are some, I think, very strong implications behind that. If you're reading the Old Testament, and your understanding as a Christian of the Old Testament somehow leaves Jesus out of the picture, according to what Jesus says here in this passage of John 5, you're misreading the text. The Old Testament is Christocentric. It's centered on Christ. And here we have two cases in which Christ is explicitly, in one case, told two of his disciples, and another case told a group of Pharisees that these passages speak of him. Uh, again, I just want you to take in how audacious that is, <clears throat> that either this man is a lunatic who is reading himself into this story, or he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, it's 
understandable that when you're reading this, you have to understand this with the lens that Christ is the center of all of what you're reading. So hopefully that makes sense. Uh, let's go with one more passage, then I'll open up for questions and comments. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Yes, please. Uh, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, good, thank you. A little bit of context here. It's a few days before Jesus is arrested, um, tried kangaroo court, beaten severely, and goes to be crucified. And it, as you're reading this, it seems as if the different religious groups are kind of like taking their shot at Jesus, so to speak. Let's, let's ask him some tough question and trap him. And Jesus comes back with, of course, wise answers that confound the people who are asking these questions. He then decides to turn the tables. You have questions? I have questions. Whose son is the Christ? Son of David. Tell you what, what I'd like us to do, just so you can see the distinction here, turn to Psalm 110. This is what Jesus is quoting from. Psalm 110. Because something you won't see in a New Testament rendering that you will see here in the Old I just want to make a distinction here. It's going to be a little bit easier to see. Okay, Psalm 110, verse 1. Hopefully your text says, or is written the same way as mine is. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, what? how does the first Lord here appear in the text you're reading? All caps. And then, how about the second Lord? Not all caps. It's a standard, you probably know this, but just for whoever might not understand this. When you're taking a look at a text like this, and you're seeing Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it's referring to God's memorial name as he referred to himself to Moses in the burning bush. And it's, I am that I am. Or... Sometimes the term or the name Yahweh is used. The letters are known, the individual vowels in between, or in some cases kind of guesswork. But you're asked, what you're actually saying here is, Yahweh says to my, and then the second term here is for Lord is Adonai, which means master. So let me try to render it this way. The I am, or Yahweh, says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, again, this is a, recognized as a song of David. So here's David writing about how Yahweh says to David's master. But David is the king of Israel. Who is David's master? If you have... David's master, or if the Lord, if the I am says to David's master, sit at my right hand, how could the king have someone over him in a human sense? 
This is, this is the conundrum that Jesus is posing to the people who are asking him the questions. He says, who is the son of David? Because um, it would be, for example, I'm going to use this right now, and I'm probably going to embarrass him. Uh, if I came up to my son and said, Zachary, my master, I would never say that in a serious context. <laughs> Thank you, son. I would never say that in a serious context. Why? That the chain of respect, in that sense, is supposed to go the other way around. So, how can the king of Israel be showing obeisance or respect to a master over him? Allegedly, there isn't one. And here's Jesus trying to make the point that the son of David, who's being spoken of here, when says, the Lord says to my Lord, that that second Lord is referring to Christ, and he's pointing himself. Jesus is pointing himself as being that person. He's the one who is David's master. So again, you'll see that. Here's, and again, this is where Jesus himself brings out, he's in the Old Testament. And we're going to see a few other places where that's the case, but let me stop for any questions or comments you might have at this point. Roman. Yeah, would, be, would, would you agree that... Uh the emphasis, depending on what you read, where you read in the Bible, is different. With the Trinity, for instance, in the Old Testament, God the Father is emphasized. In the Gospels, the Son is emphasized. In the Epistles, the Holy Spirit is emphasized. I think you could make the case that is overall, but I, I wouldn't want to make it watertight, so to speak, with a clear distinction saying that it's only the Father in the Old no. Testament. No, I, I know, but I know where you're going. But I think, I think you're right. I think the overall emphasis is there. And we're going to see several places in the Old Testament where Jesus himself is clearly able to be seen in <clears> retrospect. <throat> but I, I think the breakdown is generally correct. Rose and then Sue. When you talked about the audacious remarks that Jesus made, Joseph did the same thing before his brothers. And they thought, who are you to tell us we're going to bow down to you? No way. And yet, you know, this was the word of God coming, coming to him. Now, maybe he shouldn't have told his brothers at the time, but it seems to be that parallel. No, I think it's a good point. Uh, I think of what happened when uh, Peter denies Jesus. And when the cock crows twice and he understands, I have... I betray the Lord. And I, I forget which one of the gospel accounts says that as this is happening, Jesus is looking right at him. So it could be the case where Jesus is at this point being transported from one kangaroo court to another. And I could almost imagine where, I don't want to do this to anyone. Um, let's say I'm looking at that, uh, I'm, I'm Jesus walking along being tried. Peter's back there behind France somewhere, and Peter just finishes denying me. I'm looking at him like this, just as it's happening. And all of a sudden, Peter realizes what he had done and how Jesus had told him that he was going to do this. And it's one of those things where once it's done, the prophecy kind of kicks in when he said that. That's exactly what he told me. And I suspect that's what the brothers of Joseph did. I, I suspect Joseph figured that out a lot quicker than they did. That when they're bowing down saying, you know, we owe you our lives, when remember when I was a little 17-year-old and what you did to me? Yeah, remember? 
Uh, so yeah, I think that's a very good point. And Sue? Well, as you, uh, I guess when I read the New Testament a lot of times, I would always keep assuming that Lord was in all caps. You know, we keep, sometimes our eyes just are, don't see what's really there. And all of a sudden I'm realizing when he does this quote, the first Lord is not in caps. So what does that mean? What that means is you're taking a look at a translation from the Greek, and the distinction of I am isn't, it, it isn't, you really can't see it in the, in the Greek. That's why you've got to, if you have a case where you've got a New Testament quote of the Old Testament, like we have here of Psalm 110 in the Matthew passage, that then you can see it, which is why I took us back there. But uh, yeah, so the translators... Yes, so the reader wouldn't really pick that up, right? That's correct. So what would it have been wrong for them? I understand the whole Greek thing, but when they're actually doing this in English, would it be wrong to just change it to the... All caps, it seems like that would make it really, I mean, a more noticeable. <clears throat> they per feel that they personally, it personally, I don't think it would be. What translators will try to do, and I know there's going to be various levels of how this works, is that they will try to avoid, if possible, being interpreters of the text that they're looking at. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, you're going to have to. But depending, I mean, and I know we brought this up a week or two ago about uh, paraphrases of scripture where when you're taking a look at, let's say, particularly the message, you have one person who is giving his understanding of what a passage means. And in this case, it can go beyond a translation into, here's my interpretation of it. So what translators will typically do is take the text as is, render it as best as they thought it should be, and leave it for others to do the interpretation behind it. But no, I, in a case like this, I think it would be kind of clear that, yeah, it's really referring to the I am right. It's, it's more of a translation philosophy issue of not trying to overinterpret what they're translating. Anyone else? Let's continue on. Let's consider what the New Testament writers wrote of Jesus. When you take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, now... Something I want to point out, I'm going to bring up the next graphic here. This is a visual graphic of the Old Testament usage in just this chapter. This is taken from the New American Standard. I'm not expecting you to read this. If you can, good for you. Your eyesight's really nice. Good. I wish I had your eyes. I brought this up, and I used the text from the New American Standard because they do something similar to what Sue was asking about a moment or so ago. When they have an Old Testament quote, like for example, if you're looking at an NIV, what they'll do as a rule, I really like that, is that they'll have some sort of little letter next to it about the quote, and then at the bottom of the page, it'll tell you where the quote came from. What the New American Standard does, it doesn't tell you where the quote came from, but it will put the quote in all caps from the Old Testament. So you can visually see that you're dealing with something from the Old Testament. So that's why I wanted to do that because it's a lot easier for me to do this in PowerPoint and Word if I'm seeing all caps that I can just shade it. It made it a lot easier for me. That's why I did it. But, but do take a look. Uh, the text that's in just plain black and white is nothing having to do with an Old Testament quote where you have the kind of teal color that we have here, kind of in the middle. It's a quote, but it has to do with 
actually the angels rather than with Christ himself. What you're seeing in the bright wine green coloration is a direct Old Testament quote about Christ. Take a look. That looks like on the order of like maybe 60-70% of the text of just that uh, just that chapter is showing here's what the New Testament says about Christ. Matter of fact, let's read that. I'll read Hebrews chapter 1 just so you can have a sense of this. It's one thing to look at this graphically and go, wow, it's nice coloration. Uh, it's another way to actually hear the words. So let me go back to the NIV and read from Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. We're going to see that in a moment, how that is crucial to where I'm going with this. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I just want to stop there for a moment. Consider what you've just heard. You have that God has spoken through his son, through whom he made a little plot of ground, a little backwater somewhere, made the universe. The radiance of God's glory, we'll speak about that in a little bit, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Christ not only is the agent of creation, he's the agent of sustaining creation. Without him, creation flies apart. It dissolves, it becomes nothing. Let me continue the reading. After he, that's Christ, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, listen to these quotes. The writer of Hebrews sees Christ in these following quotes. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. So God does indeed have a son. So, if you were dealing with somebody, let's say, from a Muslim background, and, or somebody who tries to kind of make nice, so to speak, between Christianity and Islam, and say, there's not really a whole lot of difference. It's differences here and there. Uh, the Quran explicitly denies that Jesus, or that God has a son, that Allah has a son. And here we have explicitly in the book of Hebrews, God saying, you are my son, Today I become your father. And then continuing the reading. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So, again, consider this. If the one who Jesus the one who God brings into the world is not God himself. For God to tell his angels to worship 
this one that he brought into the world, would be a sin of idolatry on God's part because he's taking from his divine being and saying to something lesser to his created angels, worship him. Does that make sense? That God himself can't command someone to worship someone who isn't God. So again, this strong case for who Jesus is. Uh, let's see, continuing on. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Think about what you're looking at here. Here's God the Father telling his son by name and calling him God, putting him on a throne, then saying, God, your God, has set you above your companions. So you have this wonderful mix of doctrine here that sounds very much like the beginning of the Gospel of John, where it says in the beginning, and I just blanked on it. I don't believe I did that. Um, how did I do that? It's a judgment on me, probably. Okay. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you have identity and distinction simultaneously. <coughs> and you have the same kind of thing here in this passage in Hebrews chapter 1. Continuing on as we read through Hebrews 1, he also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. God is calling Jesus Lord. You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. And then this one. To which of the angels did God ever say, in the passage we read earlier, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then are not all angels ministering spirits set to serve those who will inherit salvation. Think about the rich understanding of who Jesus is based on just Hebrews chapter 1 alone. But look how much of the Old Testament is plowed into this very first chapter. And how all of these things, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, all of these Old Testament passages, they point to Christ. They're about him. Let me ask, questions or comments at this point? I got a question. Yes, Fran. Uh, I'm, I'm going back to the statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Yes. And then the other one was, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. You know, I'm looking at this, and it's like, is, is this where we're supposed to get the understanding that, I, I'm looking at the word begotten. Okay. And, you know, we struggle with, you know, Jesus is being eternal, and some religions say, no, he's not eternal. Um, 
the word begotten here. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Is scripture saying that this means that Christ left the riches of heaven to incarnate as a poor human being? Is that what that word begotten means? Honestly, I think it has two different levels of meaning here. One of them is, it's a term that's called the eternal generation of the Son. And the idea behind that is, in, in the case of human existence, again, I get to use him uh, as a whipping boy, sorry, Zach, <laughs> is that my son Zach was begotten in time. So he's born in 1992. He wasn't around in 1990 or 80 or 70. I was begotten from my father. And, and the light. So the, the, when we think of begotten, we think of it as a process in time. When it comes to Christ, he's begotten of his Father in two ways. One of them is that he is eternally the Son, always. The second person of the Trinity, the Logos, is thought to have been eternally begotten and generated, so to speak. And, and the, the words, I don't want to get too technical with that. But if you think of an analogy of the Son... I mean, the S-U-N, I mean, that big ball that's 93 million miles away, that kind of that way. Um, there's light that comes from the sun that you can't distinguish from the sun. It's, it's connected, it's there. The sun generates the light, but you can make a distinction between here's the sun and the light that comes from it. They're there, in a sense, simultaneously. So for creatures like us, who the only experience we have is being in time, when it comes to being begotten, we always think of like the father of him, the father, 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 and just going down the chain. But Christ is the second person of the Trinity, has always been the Son of God. So he's begotten in that sense. He's also begotten in the second sense, in the human sense, so that you have Jesus as human, begotten of God through the Holy Spirit, what we're celebrating Christmas all about, so that in his divinity and in his humanity, Jesus is the begotten Son of God. Hopefully that didn't throw more confusion into this. Well, uh, I, I, I keep going back to the word incarnate. You know, this process of the incarnation, the process of where God the Son, the eternal Son, uh, has come down to earth to become fully human. So in that sense, you know, there's, there's some type of a, re a relationship going on here. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying not to get hung up on the word of begotten. Um, you know, it, it, is this a, a scripture? The question I'm asking myself, if I were to witness to somebody, would I use this scripture to try to explain what? The, the begotten part of it. I, I'm, I'm trying to catch on well, to what you're trying, trying to say. I understand part of what you're saying. Okay. But I can't make that connection yet. Where first... At the risk of some of you, I'm undercutting my own position. I would not try to use this as an initial witnessing tool of someone. Uh, reason being is that, for example, later in the letter to the Hebrews, we find where 
the writer says that there are some things that are more difficult to understand. He refers to them as meat as opposed to milk in terms of doctrine. I think an understanding of how Christ is begotten of his Father, both eternally and also then as a human being in time, in the stream of time that we live in, that's not something that, how do I put it, this wouldn't be good stuff for Intro to Christianity 101. Uh, just in the same way that if you're teaching mathematics, you wouldn't start off with propositions of calculus before you'd start off the multiplication table. Okay. I mean, both of them are true, but the ideas build on each other. And again, with the idea of the begottenness of the Son of God, and this is something that it took me a little bit to get a grasp on after I became a Christian, is that it was clear for me to understand that Jesus is begotten of the Father as a human being when he's born, I mean, the whole process where he's born in Bethlehem, he's, he's a human being. But the fact that as the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, the one who brought all things into existence in the universe, the one through whom God created all things, he, he himself is already the begotten Son of God through all eternity. It took me a little bit of time to grasp that, but both statements are true in terms of classical Christian doctrine. The one is a lot more easily understandable because it happens in time and space. I mean, we understand family trees. We understand, um, for example, I'm Zach's father. Well, Zach may have children in the future. They'll be begotten of him and, and the like. We understand that. But what happens or how do you use a term that we only have been thinking in terms of, in terms of time for eternal persons who've always been around? Because that can be a little tricky because when you see the word begotten, one might assume, okay, you've got God the Father, he's around for like, eternity, and then for an almost kind of eternity, Jesus shows up. He's, he's somehow begotten of him. And classical Christian theology has tried to avoid that like the plague. But there, is, there are the passages that talk about how Christ is begotten of his Father. And it's on a divine and a human level. And that can be a little hard to put your, put your arms around, so to speak, theologically. Ho hopefully that helps. Julie. Yeah, like I see where Rosa's coming from because I keep getting hung up on the word today. Because today is a specific date in time. Today I've begotten you, not eternally I've begotten you. That's the part where I just keep, when you're talking, I keep going back to the word today. And again, uh, I, where I would go with this is that when the writer is, trans or is uh, understanding this, when he's saying, today I've begotten you, granted it's a, it's a straight quote out of the Old Testament, but I think it also gives the sense of an eternal now. That, that whole idea of, in God's sense, everything is today, everything is now. That's where I think he's going with it. And again, the letter to the Hebrews is not always going to be, it's not the Gospel of John. I mean, it's, it's one thing to hand a Gospel of John tract to somebody who's not quite a believer. Uh, Please don't handle the first chapter of Hebrews because it does take some understanding of what does today mean. How do you understand begottenness of two persons of the Trinity 
both of whom have existed always. That I, I will grant that. Uh, I, can, I can explain to a bit, but to explain to the last iota of detail, words escape me. I, don't know how, I honestly don't know how to do that. It's more the sense of saying, here's what scripture says, I'll give you my best take at it, and I, I have to leave it, otherwise I'm just going blah, blah, blah. After all that, anyone else? Any other questions or comments? Let's continue on. Let's consider what the New Testament writers said of Jesus. We have John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We've used that a few times before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So again, we see Jesus in the same way that the writer of the Hebrews does, as being the agent of creation, but also, and again, think through the fact that what you're seeing in Scripture isn't something that is easily made up in the minds of human beings. Because one of the things you'll hear a lot of times is that when it comes to especially the Old Testament, that what you're looking at are the recordings of just Jewish myths that were told around a campfire by some theologically or philosophically oriented people, and they just wrote them down, and this is what you got. Like, humans come up with concepts like a being who is identical and distinct at the same time. Mm, nope, nope, we, we don't do that. But yet there's a truth that's there that even if we can't put it into our four-dimensional thinking, like three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, and kind of drag it down to that, it doesn't mean it isn't true. God's operating on dimensions well beyond ours. So you can have something which, to us, may seem to be contradictory, and yet to him, is not. Uh, I've used, I'll, I'll make very quick reference to this, most of you probably seen me do this already. Uh, it's a concept from an idea called flatland, where if you have beings that are only in two dimensions, let's see if I can do this. Okay. Let's see, do we have? Yeah, we do. Okay. If we have, let's say this this board is flatland, two-dimensional existence, beings that are living in uh, this two-dimensional existence, and I have an advantage. I live in three dimensions. I have a one-dimensional advantage over the beings here. And I announce myself, beings of the second of the second dimension of Flatland. I am a being of the third dimension. I am about to put my hand into your world. And I put my hand like this. And this is what they see. That is hand. So I then say, once again, I will enter my hand into your world. And this is what they see. <laughs> I've got water attention, but <laughs> sorry, it looks, it looks a little thick. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, they'll say that's one thing. How could the three be one? That makes no sense. That's a contradiction. It, it, it's, a, it's something they can't understand because they're limited to two dimensions. We can understand it because we have three. 
we understand that this isn't a contradiction. Where I'm going with this is that when you have a being who reveals himself as being distinct and identical to God at the same time, for us, that's like the folks in Flatland trying to resolve, how do you have this and this being the same thing simultaneously? So, okay. we'll, we'll a quick trip to Flatland before we continue on. Yes, sir. Like an ant would have one dimension, a child would have another dimension, an adult would have another dimension, an intellect, uh, a smarter person would have another dimension. How far do dimensions go? Well, I'm actually talking about spatial time and space dimensions. So while there might be perceptions of where Not we're the at. Same theory. I'm just thinking how far it would carry out. Uh, in terms of intellect, I haven't given that. It's like Joel Osteen. I haven't thought a lot about that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had to. Um, I don't know. I, that, that'd be a good point. Um, yeah, because I guess I'm just. I was kind of focused on just the spatial dimensions of resolving what can you do in three dimensions that doesn't seem to make sense in two, and that using that same analogy. For beings like ourselves who live in three dimensions of time, excuse me, three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, when you have the being who created all of this working in dimensions well beyond this, you can have what to us seem to be contradictions, and for him, it's anything but. It makes perfect sense. That's the point about the ant and the child. I'd have to give that some thought, seriously. It just seems like it would pertain to how your thought process would be in the same way that you're showing your example? I think there could be in a sense, uh, and let me use this even within human child development, uh, the idea between abstract and concrete thinking, mm -hmm. that there's a flexibility that's, that happens as you get older, that as you're talking to, let's say, a child and, and speaking very, and you need to speak very concretely, if you're speaking in terms of figures of speech or other forms of communication that require somebody to really get some thought behind it, sarcasm, for example, um, might not get it. So I, I think there may be a comparison there as well. I think to give that some deeper thought, seriously. Because I, I will use that eventually. I, I, I do borrow from people I, I've become, I've, who've given me good ideas. I'll give you credit, Jeff. Yes, Can you use the example of identical twins, and yet they're distinctly different? That's interesting. I, maybe somebody can answer this better than I can. If you have identical twins, um, your daughters, if I may, do they, have, do they share the same DNA? Yes. Okay. So I think you would have the beginnings of, a, of an example comparison. I, I, I honestly didn't know if identical twins did well, have. supposed to be. They've never been DNA. Well, no, I'm just saying theoretically. I mean, not Thirty saying, years ago, they didn't. You'd have no reason to ID them that way. But, yeah, but I mean, theoretically, I mean, yeah. So I think there is, that's an interesting idea that you have two beings who share a common genetic pattern. Um, that's an interesting analogy to use, Carmela. But I have heard, and I'm 
I'm pretty sure this is correct that they don't share the same fingerprint. No, no. Right. They, okay. they share exactly the same DNA, which is strange. They have the same DNA, they're exactly alike, but yet the DNA in their fingerprint is different. I mean, they don't share fingerprints. Interesting. So, what so the DNA thing is? Identical DNA, different, distinct, or distinct fingerprints. Interesting. They give them separate personalities. Yeah. They're not, their personalities are not the same track. Right, and it's, uh, I'll use an example. Some of you are Star Trek aficionados, some of you aren't. Um, there's, a being, there's a race in one of the Star Trek TV series called the Borg. And the Borg work from a collective mind, where all of them are physically distinct beings, but they're all driven by the same mind. So, perhaps a, a kind of warped analogy there. Um, let's continue on while we still have. The, were there any other questions? I, I want to make sure I wasn't missing someone. Let's continue on. In Jude chapter 1, verse 5, there are two early manuscripts, and, and I'll ask us to turn there. Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Does anyone have the English Standard Version that they've got with them right now? Because I know sometimes people might have different translations of carrying. This will still work, it won't be an issue. <laughs> Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Let me actually read that and plug it in. Jude writes, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. The English Standard Version believes that the way the manuscript tradition works for Jude is that there are several older manuscripts that actually use the word Jesus, not Lord. So this would read, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt. Nice reminder about who's the one who's removing the people out of Egypt. Uh, John 12, 37 through 41. See, I think I can go up there. Let's read that. I'll read that. Gospel of John, chapter 12. 3741, this one I'd like to finish with, is this, and then the question that's being asked here. John writes, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they would still not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. I don't know if you've ever read this passage, or I'm sure you've read the passage, but if it occurred to you, it says, Isaiah wrote this because he saw Jesus' glory. So when did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? And again, here we have John referring back to somebody in the Old Testament saying that they're seeing something of Jesus. I want to point out a rather interesting difference that you'll find in the rendering of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. There's a vision that Isaiah has of God in the temple. 
I'll read from the NIV first. And now, actually, I have the, where it says NIV 1984. That actually now is a distinction that's being made because of the release of the uh, new NIV last year. So that's so if you're like going into um, Let's say you're getting an app for your iPod or your iPhone and you want to get the new international version, it's now defaulting you to the 2011 version. I discovered that when I bought the NIV for my uh, iPod. Uh, like, oh, I want the 84 version. Well, you can, you can get it still on Bible Gateway, but um, anyway, going off of <laughs> that one. But anyway, uh, from the NIV, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the way that this is rendered in the Septuagint, and let me, again, give some quick background on the Septuagint. Septuagint is about the earliest comprehensive attempt to translate the entire Old Testament from Hebrew and the partial Aramaic into Greek. Because right around this time you have the rise of the, uh, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, making something of a big stir all around that part of the world. The world that's becoming what is called Hellenized, or Greekicized, for lack of a better term, because Hellenized sounds a little bit cleaner. So, if you have a world in which the kids you're raising, they just, you, know, they, they, you can't keep them on the farm anymore, and you can't teach them Hebrew anymore, so they're learning Greek. You want to translate your scriptures into a language they can understand. So when the Septuagint was being done, and sometimes the designation LXX is used, the letters stand for 70 in Roman numerals. According <laughs> to legend, there were 70 translators of the Septuagint who apparently worked on the text, and they worked on it independently, and then when they got together, Lo and behold, everything they translated was exactly the same in all 70 renderings. Let me tell you, that could never have happened. <laughs> that could never have happened. Interesting legend, but in any case, the Septuagint was used primarily as the source of quotes for the Old Testament as found in the New Testament. So, when John is, trans or when John is working through the passages in Isaiah, we have every reason to think that he's thinking in terms of the Septuagint when he's doing this. Look where the Septuagint goes with this. I'll read from that. It came to pass in the year in which King Osius, and please understand, that's more of a fancy way of saying King Uzziah. There's a core of the same, so let's not get hung up on that. It's just a different way of nicknaming somebody. Uh, it'd be like today calling somebody William or Bill, or Billy. I mean, we understand in our culture, basically it's the same name. So let's not get hung up on the Osseus. Um, in which King Osseus died, that I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, and the house was full of his glory. Interesting. A little bit of a different twist. We can understand the connection between temple and the house of the Lord. Bless you. So we see in, this is called the Masoretic text, this is, it's the Hebrew line of which we get the Hebrew Old Testament, and, and the translations are done from that. But you can see the comparison between, and the train of his robe, 
<coughs> Septuagint translators thought that that should go in the direction of glory. The house was full of his glory. And there's a rather interesting symmetry here. If we take a look and continue to read Isaiah chapter 6, let's see we're up on time. Quickly turning to Isaiah 6. Okay, Vernon read the first verse. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. And listen to what the, the praise, the ongoing praise of God is in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you can see a symmetry here in the Septuagint where it's saying, Isaiah sees that the house is full of glory. And even that harkens back to, if you recall, the account of when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem. When the beginning services were starting, the priests had to vacate. They had to vacate because the cloud of God's glory filled the place that they weren't able to operate. Here's Isaiah, according to the Septuagint, seeing that the house is full of the glory of God. And that as the angels are praising God, the whole earth is full of his glory. And John looks back at this and says, Isaiah saw Christ, that when he's looking at the one sitting on the throne of the temple, he's looking at Christ. So you have this wonderful set of passages that we've already looked at. Looked at Hebrews, looking at Jude. We have John looking back. We have John looking back, particularly Isaiah, and saying Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. And here's what he's looking at it. So I, I, I'm trying to make this link so far that we can see not only is the Old Testament full of Christ, it's Christ-centered, but it's also full of his glory. And that's what, how we're going to proceed along as we're going along in this quarter. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for the Lens of Glory.